morning again, and uh, good to be back sharing God's word with you this morning. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. As we continue to look at this beast which arises from the sea. Revelation 13.3, we'll read down to verse 7. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints, and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds, and tongues, and nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word this morning and we pray that our hearts would be prepared to receive your word, Lord, that it may bear fruit in our lives, that that fruit may give you the glory, that our lives might shine forth with the grace of our Saviour and that other people's lives may be changed as well. Lord, our desire is that you would be glorified this morning in this service, Lord, through this message. Lord, I pray that Jesus would be lifted up. In his precious name I pray. Amen. Just recapping on what we spoke about about a couple of weeks ago now. If you look at, go back to verse 1 and 2, it says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and, and ten horns, and, his, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat, and great authority. Just a recap on a few of the points that we brought up last time about this specific beast. The first one was that we saw that he rose up from the sea, and the sea was a picture of the Gentiles. And the fact that this, this beast came up out of the Gentile nations from it, and we likened the sea to the turbulent to a turbulent thing, unstable, um, un, unlike the earth, which is stable and hard. And we, we spoke about the fact that if you look in the world today, you look at all the different types of, uh, of uh, governments there are and all the unrest there has been throughout the ages ever since man has decided that it's better to rule himself rather than God rule him there has been nothing but unrest and murders and everything else and our days are no different so this beast was Gentile in origin and it represented the fourth major power that would come up in the world. And we started from Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember. And then after uh, Babylon came Persia and then Greece. So the kingdom represented by this fourth beast, we, we found out, was the Roman Empire. Okay? The Roman, Roman Empire, we noticed, would experience a resurgence in the last days, okay? which we are in, or the latter days. 
And it would, its resurgence would come with a king or a political system that arose in these last days. And this was represented by the seventh head of this particular beast. So it had seven heads. Five had already gone by the time John was writing this letter. One was in power and there was one more to come, which was the seventh. At the emergence of the seventh head, we see a resurgence of the Roman Empire. And Rome was a terrible monster witnessed by Daniel in his vision as well. And by Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. And it was the same sort of thing. God was repeating the same thing that we might learn it and understand it. Now, if you remember the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of, the statue had a head of gold, had a chest of silver, had a belly and thigh of bronze and legs of iron, and then it went down to the feet. And when it reached the feet, the, le- the iron was mixed with clay. Okay. Now, the, the, the golden head, God, God gave us the interpretation of that particular uh, that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and gave it to Daniel, and Daniel gave it to Nebuchadnezzar and God's name was glorified, but the gold head represented Nebuchadnezzar himself and his kingdom, and then the silver uh, represented the, the Persian Medo Empire, and then, with, sorry, with the arms, and then you had uh, Greece, and Greece was a very quick uh, empire, and then you had the two legs representing Rome. And it's interesting to see the change in this particular statue of the types of metal that are used. It starts off with gold, then silver, bronze or brass, and then iron. Now, which is more precious, the head or the toes? The head. Which is harder? The legs. The bottom is harder than the... the, The legs are harder than the head. Gold is a very soft metal. Very precious, though. So it sort of shows us... a change in what's happening with each uh, evolution or each growth of, of a new type of empire, it was becoming harder but less precious. It was becoming stronger in terms of its strength but less glorious. And may, it may have something to do with the fact that the world's population continued to increase and the more people there are, the less wealth there is to go around. So there is more power required in terms of military strength to keep everything under control. Um, Whereas in in Babylon's days or King Nebuchadnezzar's days, uh, they could amass great fortunes and wealth. I don't know if if you've read most of the uh, stories uh, in Chronicles and, and Kings and all those things, they amassed huge amounts of gold for themselves and you know, they, they, they built these palaces and, and temples lined with gold and things. And you don't tend to see those sort of things these days. The other thing we notice about this uh, final beast is that it actually took on the characteristics of the ones before it. Do you remember? Where Daniel saw four different beasts come up out of the water. He saw a lion, he saw a, a bear, he saw a leopard. This final beast had characteristics from each of those all incorporated within itself and, and it was it's a bit like and if you know the understand a bit of history in the Roman Empire the Romans loved to absorb every other culture into their own they often didn't stop other other cultures from um, uh, worshiping their own gods they simply added them to their own and they it was like a bit of a conglomeration the Roman Empire of all different types that had gone before all different types of 
of, uh, of peoples and languages, um, but they simply ruled the whole thing. We found out that the beast, this, this particular system, or the rise of these four beasts that came out of the, uh, the sea, the last one being this Roman Empire, was really uh, the plan of the beast, of Satan, to try to, to control the people of this world, to take rulership up for himself. But we also found out that where the devil tries to um, uh, gain power and be God and master of this earth, that God has already revealed the plan in detail and given it to us in the Bible. So we know it. And that's the, the, the wonderful advantage that we have. We know it from, from now. God knew it from the beginning. We know it because we can read it in the book. And we have now the privilege of being able to read God's word and understand what's to come. So let's continue the story of this final empire and let's see what happens in these last few years of rule of Satan upon this earth. Okay, Verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? This is a, this is an, an, a very interesting verse, this one here. There have been so many different things written about this particular verse. Who is it talking about? What is it talking about? It says that one of the heads was wounded to death and its deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. Movies have been made about this particular verse. Some, um, a number of historical figures. See, see how it says a deadly wound was healed. Sorry, it was wounded to death and a deadly wound was healed. Some people believe that some historical figure is going to come back. Someone like Nero or Judas Iscariot and be this, this beast that, that dies and comes back to life and sort of imitates Jesus in a way. And all the world is going to be following after him because they see, oh, he was dead and now he's alive again. But it's questionable whether Satan has the power to restore life to one who has died. It's very questionable. Even though his power is fairly, fairly strong. The most common view about this particular uh, verse here is that it's the revival of the Roman Empire itself. Most of you would understand that we're not living in the Roman Empire now as such. There is no emperor as such. Um, I don't speak to you in Latin at the moment. The Roman Empire, as we understand it, seemingly died out around 1200 AD after it was split and a number of other things happened to it. Well, the, the line of reasoning goes that it died, the Roman Empire died out and then comes back to life in our days, more or less. And people wonder after it because... It can't die. It never, it never dies. Um, I don't necessarily follow that line of reasoning. And the main reason I don't, and this is my own, my own thoughts on this matter, um, is the flow of verse 3. It says that after the head was fatally wounded, which means it was, for all intents and purposes, dead, okay, it was healed. And it seems as if that event then causes the world to follow after it in some sort of wonder. Okay? 
in an extraordinary way, the beast, or that, that head, comes back to life. Now, keep in mind, the beast wasn't dead. The head was dead. Okay? The wounding of the head of the beast and its apparent resurrection, for my reading, has to be in a very short amount of time. It can't be over a thousand years, as some people have, have said. They say that Rome died out of 1200, roughly 1200 AD, that now in the year 2000 and so, or whatever it may be, um, it rises and people say, oh wow, it's back to life again. And they wonder after that. I don't know whether that's the way I read this particular verse. The vast majority of people in this world would find it difficult to make the link. See, it's not going to be called the Roman Empire as such, is it again? It, may, it, it will take a different type of form. Um, it won't have the same title as such. So the vast majority of people in this world aren't going to be able to make that link between what happened a thousand years ago and what's happening now. Most people will be blissfully unaware of, of its re regeneration. Okay? So it's not necessarily going to cause them to wander after it and say, oh, wow, look, it was dead and now it's live again. It's going to be such a gradual thing as we're seeing now what's happening in, uh, in Europe that people are just... It's a bit like the frog that you put in cold water, you turn up the heat very, very slowly and before long the frog's cooked and he hasn't bothered to jump out, hasn't realised it. What I think happens is that something dramatic occurs which causes the world to say, oh, wow, look at that. And then it causes them to wonder after that, that beast and say, that's, that's an incredible thing. So verse, says, verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as it were, were wounded to death, and his head and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now before I give you my view on this particular subject, I'd like to first establish some simple facts from God's word. Okay? Turn with me to chapter 17 of Revelation. Look at verse 9 and 10. I want to establish some, some, just some, some very basic facts. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen and one is. And, another, and, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh he must continue a short space. Okay. So this seventh head that arises will only continue a very short space. Uh, why is that, you ask? Or, or why, why is it only a short time? Is it because it's only going to last for the seven years of the tribulation period? Well, possibly, but possibly even less. See, if you look at the history of the Roman Empire, there were many emperors who didn't last very long. They lasted just a few years, two years, three years, five years. I was reading some of the histories of some of these, some of these emperors and it was like a free-for-all. They went through one after another after another and they'd only last because they'd, they'd cop a knife in the back after a very short time. Someone else wanted the, the kingdom. They, they'd rally some people behind them. There'd be a bit of a, a, a struggle and pretty soon you know it, you've got a new, a new emperor. But it says this last one that arises will only arise for a very short time. So I want you to keep one thing at the back of your mind. The important thing here to understand is, for some reason, the seventh head 
is only going to continue a very, very short time. Let's read on. Look at verse 11. Okay? And the beast that was, and is, and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings, one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Now, first point, there are not seven heads anymore. There are eight Look at verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. So, hang on a sec here. And it says he is of the seven and goeth into perdition. And then it says the ten horns are the ten kings which give their power to the beast and they only, they're only going to be in power for one hour with that beast. Now, not literally one hour, it's, it's symbolic of a very short amount of time. Now, this should start getting you thinking, shouldn't it? Hang on, we were dealing with seven heads before. Now we've got an eighth floating around there somewhere. Okay? And it says that the seventh one is only going to continue a very short time. And it says that the eighth is going to come around and he's going to be of the seven as well. Hmm. The Roman Empire has gone through a lot of changes in history. It was at one stage it was it was mainly a republican rule, okay? In other words, people had to vote, there was a senate and and then it shifted more to an emperor rule. In other words, the power was was, was taken out of the taken out of the, uh, the the senate and moved more into the emperor's hands. Um, at what some stages it was military rule. At one stage it was a pagan empire worshipping all different types of gods. At the next, the next day, it was apparently a Christianized empire. Okay? It was split at one stage into east and into west. That's why we have two legs in that, in that statue. Because it was split into two separate parts. At, some, at one stage, there were a number of different emperors all at the same time. When, when uh, Domitian was... Domitian? Yeah, was in, was in power. He actually organized co-emperors with him. I think there were four of them at one stage. But it was split up then into east and into west. Okay? Now, the west fell around 400 AD. You see, all these Germanic tribes started coming through. And as they, as they were coming through, they caused the west a whole lot of problems. And eventually Rome itself was sacked. Rome itself was invaded. Visigoths and Vandals and all these different types of, of, of tribes coming through. But the eastern part fell only to the Turks in 1200. So it lasted roughly another thousand years on top of the, uh, on top of the western side. Now it says that ten kings received power with this eighth beast, with that last beast that comes around. Now there is eight heads. The eighth head is, he calls him the beast, right? Who was and is. Sorry, who? Uh, the beast... Duh, 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 duh which was and is not, even he is the eighth. These ten kings give their power to that eighth head. But who is this eighth head? And what does he have to do with the great Roman beast that rises from the sea? Let's have a look at it a bit more. Well, the one thing we do know, the ten kings give their allegiance to this head. Okay. Go to Daniel chapter 2. 
Then you're in chapter 2, verse 32. Now keep in mind the first two points we've made. The seventh head will only exist, exist for a very short time. There are not seven heads, but there are then eight. Okay? Or there's an eighth head. Daniel 2, verse 32. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast silver and his arm his arm sorry, in his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Now get into verse forty. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now, we're sure that this passage is talking about the Roman Empire because it says the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. We know that Rome is that fourth kingdom. okay? And it's got the ability to be able to crush anyone in its, in its way. That's why the iron is represented as a representative of its power. But what is it with the feet and the toes? Why is there clay mixed up in that? Who's ever tried mixing iron and clay together? It's not an easy thing to do. The iron, the iron wouldn't stick very well with the, uh, with the clay. The clay, as the clay dries, it would separate from the iron. You'd get a bit of a mess, to tell you the truth. Um, but nevertheless, the clay will hold its form. Okay? Uh, but clay is what, when it dries up, can be quite brittle. Iron and clay do not mix well. But we reach certain parts of the feet and the toes... And we find that there's miry clay mixed with, uh, with, with the iron. So it's not, even, it's not even clay, potter's clay that's dried. When you make a pot, when you're making a pot, have you ever seen those, the wheels that go around and around? Is that, is that clay fairly dry? No, it's very wet, isn't it? And it has to be wet because you have to be able to mould the thing and get it to, to where you want it and get it to the shape. If it's too dry, you can't do that. So, the fact that the feet and the toes contain miry clay, which means clay that's very, very wet and sloppy, tells us something interesting. It says that there's something not entirely finished here. Something that's been put together fairly quickly, but hasn't had time really to, to dry out and harden as such. You know what's a wonderful picture of? Democracy. Democracy at work. Because the clay is very indicative of man. Of men and their opinions. See, where the, where the iron is power, right? Iron is hard. The kings before, you know the beasts before, they had the, the, the head of gold and the, the, the chest and arms of silver, whatever it was. You don't see clay mixed up with those. Why? 
because there was one guy in charge of the whole thing and no one else really had a say. But when you get down to the feet, right, and this is the, the only generation, I think, in, in the whole of history where people have the say as to who's sitting up there, right? So people are always putting their opinions forth. They have a right to vote people out and that causes a little bit of instability, doesn't it? It's hard to wield power on your subjects when your subjects can do what? Just get rid of you <laughs> at an election. You can't do everything you want. When the rule was a dictatorship, we find great strength. But when the people are involved in choosing their leaders every few years, as in our system, right, then the leadership doesn't have the ability to be able to make the tough decisions, does it? We all know that. We all know it because every three years when we have an election or four years, whatever it is, they make us all these promises. And they make us these promises to do what? Is it to make us happy? Is it because those promises are necessarily the best thing for the country? Not necessarily. It's to get them in power or to keep them in power. And if we're happy enough with what they're giving us and if they'll fill up our pockets enough at the end of the day, then it's more likely we're going to keep them in power to keep on ruling as such. They are at our mercy, these rulers. If they don't keep us happy, they'll lose power. So every three years, we find democratic governments of the world not making hard decisions. This is why Copenhagen, every time these guys get together, now, look, if you've, if you've, um, I get onto 9MSN, which is the, the web page, which is the news and all that sort of stuff over there, and oftentimes you'll see a little survey. And one of the questions on the survey, and everyone just clicks yes and no, uh, I noticed was, do you think that they'll come out with a new treaty from Copenhagen? Right? And I think the overwhelming majority said no. Now, why would the overwhelming majority of people say no to them coming out with a proper decision out of this thing. It's because they know every government has vested interests, right, first of all, and then they are at the mercy of their constituents. So if the people aren't going to back them up on it, the government of a particular nation will probably not vote for something. If they're like this, if they're on the borderline and there's an election coming up and they, are, they have to make a decision. They're not going to make a hard decision that's going to make it harder for the people of their country, are they? Because their political hides are on the line. So they won't make the decision. They'll hold off or they'll make a decision that makes it look to their people as if they're batting for them and hoping that they're going to keep their jobs. That's the way it goes when you're in a democracy, you see. People rule is fantastic. Out of all the, out of all the governments... Right? It is the best because people get a choice. There's not one person stuck up there who becomes a dictator and, 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 and rules with an iron fist, but there is instability in that system, built in automatically into that system. Okay? Now, this is what we get when we get to this final kingdom. When we get to this final kingdom, right, where the seven head comes up, it's going to be iron mix of clay. It can't wield power automatically, and it's because... All these kings have got to get together. They have to first of all agree to everything and then their people have to back them up in those decisions. That's why we have iron and clay mixed up. So, third point, the strength of the ten federated kings in this final kingdom 
will be fragile and doesn't hold together very well. Okay, that's the third point. Turn to Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. Daniel 7.23 Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Who are we talking about here? The Roman Empire again. Okay, so we're on the right page. Now we're speaking about the Roman Empire, and this last king that shall come up. Look at verse 24. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise... And another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Hang on a sec. I thought the ten kings gave their power to the beast. Didn't they? And hang on a sec. There's not ten kings anymore. There's eleven. So there were seven heads, and then there was eight. Now there were ten kings, but another one's going to come up. And he's going, to, he's going to put three of them in their place. So there was 11 kings that came up. To subdue three kings means to, the dictionary says anyway, the Cambridge Dictionary says, to reduce the force of something or to prevent something from developing. Okay? So this king, the 11th one that comes up, is going to prevent something from happening to three of these other kings. What causes the 11th horn to subdue three of the other ones? And who is this eleventh horn anyway? Turn to verse. Go back to verse twenty of that of Daniel chapter seven. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Go to verse 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall, they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of a time. They're given into his hands for three and a half years. Not seven, three and a half. Okay? So this little horn that comes up, that comes up after the ten, he doesn't come up with the ten, he comes up after them. And he subdues three of them. In other words, he stops them from, from rising up too much or he stops something they've got planned to do. All of a sudden, speaks very great things. He makes war with the saints. He speaks against the Most High. He wears out the saints and he starts to want to change times and laws, what is this little horn doing at the end? Well, go back to Revelation chapter 13. Keep your finger there on that, on that chapter, in Daniel chapter 7, and go back to Revelation 13, verse 4. And I want you to look at the parallels here, okay? Revelation 13, 4 says, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things. 
and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue how long? Forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. That looks, that sound familiar to you? That's almost an exact duplicate of what we read in Daniel chapter 7. So this little horn and this last beast that comes up are synonymous with each other. They are one and the same. There are too many parallels here for it to be speaking of anyone else. So what have we got? We've got the seventh head only lasts for a very short time. There are not seven heads, but there are then eight. The strength of the ten federated kings will be very fragile in holding together. And there are not ten horns, but an eleventh comes up and subdues three of them. Who are we talking about with all these points? Who is the beast from the abyss? Who is the eighth head? Who is the eleventh horn? Your answer, not your friend and mine, the Antichrist. The eighth head, who replaces the seventh, that only hang around for a very short time, is the Antichrist. The one who comes after the ten kings, halfway through the tribulation period and subdues three of them, is the Antichrist. The one who speaks blasphemies and declares war on the saints is the Antichrist. He is the beast from the abyss who goes into perdition. Now let me tell you a little story. This is the way I see it, roughly happening. The beginning of the tribulation period sees a formation, the beginning of the seven years sees a formation of a ten-nation confederacy and the rise of the Roman Empire again. Okay? At this stage, the Antichrist is not in power. He is not in power. A leader emerges... Through who, the, uh, a leader emerges, though, who has the characteristics of a great leader and visionary and is able to bring these ten together for whatever purposes may exist at that time. Now, anyone heard Obama's acceptance speech of his uh, thing? You did, Eddie. I bet you you did. Anyone hear that? Anyone hear that speech? Quite a, quite a, a, a very good speech, wasn't it? Stirring. It was stirring. And, and the people in the audience, leaders of other states and, and, and other people, mesmerised. The guy is a very good orator. He speaks very well. He comes across very clearly. He is a great speaker. Now, I'm not saying this is him, right? What I'm saying to you is that this, there is going to come a leader who is very good at doing that sort of stuff. And he's able to convince these ten kings or ten nations to come together for a specific purpose. Whether it's climate change or whether it's something else, I don't know. Okay? But these, this person is going to be able to do that. Um, at the beginning of this time, either this leader or the Antichrist himself acting as some sort of ambassador. So keep in mind, most of you are going to ask, well, how does the, you know, the, the one sign the treaty with, the, with Israel and then renege on it halfway through the, the thing? Well, the Antichrist may be someone like an ambassador at this time. He won't be in power. 
He may be someone like an ambassador. You know, like Tony Blair. They've sent now Tony Blair's out of office. They've sent him to be a, an envoy and and to go and organise stuff in the Middle East and and, and organise peace things and that. Now, it could be him. Who knows? Um, but this, the, the Antichrist will be someone like an ambassador who may be responsible for the signing of this peace treaty, who brings the parties together. Okay? So he may, he may be the one who brokers the deal and allows Israel to build their temple again. A fragile peace then takes hold under this particular government, under these ten nations, under the, the, the influence and guidance of this particular leader. Sometime during this first three and a half years, something will happen to cause three of those kings to rebel and want to walk out. Something's going to happen. At this point, or by this point, the seventh king is out the door. Gone. He's either killed, or he steps down through failure, or possibly his term in office comes up. And he has to be replaced. It could be that quickly. How long does the term in office normally last? About three years, huh? Maybe something as simple as that. All looks lost for the Confederacy. Three are walking out the door. They're gone. They're out of there. They are not happy with what's going on until the one stepping into his position, the seventh one, who is the eighth head, steps into his role nice and smoothly continues the whole thing, is able is able to, sorry, either declares war on these three and wins that war, or is able to subdue them in a way and get them back on board. So that the, 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 either through diplomacy or war, this person is going to be a brilliant strategist. The eighth head we're talking about, the Antichrist, comes in halfway through the, through the tribulation period. He saves the confederacy. He saves this union of ten things. Everyone thinks, oh, it's gone, it's finished. The whole thing's going to fall apart, it's all over. He comes in and brings it back to life straight away. Either through diplomacy or through war. I don't know which one. Either way, he is going to be a brilliant strategist. He will be the eighth head. And the ten will give their total allegiance to him in, in in this confederacy. People will wonder how he brought the confederacy back to life when all looked lost. Through his victory, he will cause the Confederacy to become the envy of the world. His power will be enormous, but the salvation of the Confederacy will come at a cost for Israel, which may have been the cause of the trouble in the first place. You see, sometimes we, we think about this tribulation period and we think, oh, it's going to be... What's going to happen is going to be so unreal. It's going to be so out of this world, we're not even going to be able to comprehend all the stuff that's happening. But you know something? It's going to be a continuation of, of the same sort of political systems that are happening today. It's going to culminate in that thing. People are going to wonder, they're going to say, this, is, this guy is amazing. Look what he's done. We're going to follow him. The ten follow him and give their power to him. But Israel is going to suffer his wrath. The Antichrist hatred will be so strong toward Israel that to denigrate them, he will desecrate their most precious thing, their temple. He will do this by erecting a statue of himself or his partner will erect a statue of himself and demand worship. They'll be commanded not only to bow down to him but to his kingdom, its rules and its precepts. The Antichrist is the eighth head and the eleventh horn. He will become the eighth head at the midway point of the tribulation and he is the one who's going to seek to change laws and times and things. Do you recall... 
back in Revelation uh, 9 and 12, the angel was given the keys to the bottomless pit and then all these hordes of demons that had been locked up in the abyss came out. Remember I said to you that happened around the midway point of the tribulation period because after that we see terrible things start to happen. At this midway point of the tribulation, war breaks out also in heaven. Do you remember that? And Satan is cast down and confined to the earth. Well, it's going to be at this point that he will enter into the heart of a man. A man we commonly call the Antichrist. And Satan is not going to be a happy camper. In Revelation 12, 12, it says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Okay, so everyone in heaven, be happy. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And he enters into the heart of, a, of this particular man. Is it any wonder this particular man, the Bible says, speaks great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High? And in Revelation 13, 6, it says, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and everyone that dwells in heaven. If you were cast out of heaven, if before you had the privilege for 6,000 years to be able to go to heaven, come back to earth, go anywhere you like, then all of a sudden you found yourself kicked out of heaven and confined to the earth. That's one angry customer. He's going to be very, very angry because he knows he can't get back into heaven. He knows he's only got about three and a half years to go before he's cast into the abyss. He's an angry, angry angel. And he enters into the heart of a man and all the fury, all the hatred that he has towards heaven and the children of heaven is going to be unleashed. And he's going to have his minions who have been released from the, the abyss, who have been locked up also for thousands of years, released at this point. He's going to have them at his command. He is going to cause absolute havoc on the earth. He's going to be like a caged animal, venting his fury at heaven while seeking to kill all those who bear the name of the one who defeated him on that cross. The one who, while he was bleeding, defeated him. Think of that. When he thought he won the victory at that cross, that was his death sentence. And the one who humbly allowed himself to be killed by us won the victory for us on the cross. While his life was flowing out of his veins, and the, the devils in hell were, were rejoicing. We were winning. He won the victory for us. What a terrible time for the world. Satan imprisoned on this, on this planet. With every rebellious demon at his command to literally hell on earth. Hatred as we have never, or this world will have ne never experienced. You thought that the Holocaust that was unleashed on Israel was bad? It's going to be much worse. But you know something? While, while that time, Satan realizes is short, 
and he vents all his fury out because he knows he doesn't have long to live. You know something? This is our life call. Our life call is a life of faith and obedience because we also know the time is short. While he's getting angrier and angrier because he knows his time is short, the shorter we know our time is here in this world, the closer we know to the coming of this time and the closer we know that Jesus is coming back, it should not cause us to get angry. It should cause us to be more desperate to love. It should spur us on, knowing the time is short, one, to, to want to see our Saviour. We should want to see him more. While the devil is shaking his fist at heaven, we should be opening up our arms even more and more to heaven, longing to be there because he's won it for us. While the devil is, is seeking to destroy every, every person that calls himself a Christian here on earth, we should be seeking to save them. We should be seeking to save every person here on earth because we know our time is short. We have been redeemed. We have found grace in his sight. The devil has lost. The devil knows his time is short and he's, he knows his destiny. And because he knows his destiny, he knows, we know the way he's going to react. But do you know your destiny? Do, new, do you know what your destiny is this morning? If you don't, you should. Because just as well as the devil knows his destiny, we should know ours. God has made it so. Because we know we have inherited heaven, we should be spurred on towards it. We who were strangers and pilgrims here on the earth will soon be totally released from these mortal bodies which are decaying and dying and we are going to be given immortality. We won't be like Satan is, excluded from heaven. Not allowed to go in there anymore. But we will inherit heaven. Think of it. Inherit heaven. Not because we had any right to it. Not because we deserved it. In stark contrast to that, we didn't deserve it. But God decided to give it to us. The one who desired heaven as his inheritance, Satan, didn't get it. But we didn't want it either. Did we? And God gave it to us. We were the ones who had no desire for heaven or God, but we found grace in his sight and we received it all. While the devil will be thrown into a lake which is going to be on fire. How, how, how sturdy is a lake? It has no foundation. You're swimming in it. God's going to put us in a city with 12 foundations. Look at the difference. While the devil and all those who follow him are going to be swimming in a lake with no foundation, we are going to be, our feet are going to be firmly planted in a city with 12 glorious foundations. Eternal security. Adoption to God's family. Let me ask you this morning. Do you have it? Is that inheritance yours this morning? And if you don't know, you'd better know. Because if you don't know, the odds are that it's not your inheritance. If you're not sure this morning that you will one day see Jesus face to face, 
If you have no desire to see him this morning, ask yourself why. If you don't understand that the time is short and that spurs you on to do more, to love God more, to seek heaven more, to read God's word more, to love more, to do more. If you're not spurred on by the fact that we only have a very short time and every day that passes we have less, ask yourself why. Have you committed your heart to Jesus Christ this morning? Is he truly your king? If he's not, make him your king. He's your king anyway. It's, it's actually, I saw a video that says, you know, to say, I'll, I'll make Jesus Lord of my life, is actually a stupid thing to even say. He is Lord of our lives regardless of whether we accept him or not. Whether a person accepts Jesus as Lord, he is gonna, you're going to have to bow down to him at the end anyway. He is Lord. There is no two ways about it. Not whether we make him Lord or, or whether other people make him Lord. The question is, are you following him as your Lord this morning? Or are you living a rebellious lifestyle? If you are, if you know you're saved and you, there is something that's, that's holding you back from serving him as your king faithfully, get rid of it today. Don't waste another moment. If you don't know your eternal destiny this morning, if you don't know that you're inheriting heaven, if you don't know that you've been adopted into God's family, if you don't know you've been born again, don't waste another moment. Go to someone. Find out how. It's only one step. One step between heaven and hell. Do it. Come to me, come to David, come to Eddie, come to Brother Steve, come to Brother Don, whoever. Talk to us and we'll share with you what you need to do. The devil knows his time is short. And so do we. Let's make every use of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this precious time we can look into your word, Lord. We thank you for its fullness. We thank you that you fill our hearts with your love and your, your wisdom and your grace. We thank you for sitting us in heavenly places even now when we didn't deserve it. We thank you that our Lord suffered and died for our sakes. And we thank you that we have the blessings of an eternal home, a place we can call home. Lord, as we travel through this world as strangers and pilgrims, help us to be the ambassadors you want us to be. Help us to redeem the time for the days of evil and help us to glorify your name in everything we do, in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. May our lives be fruitful for you, not for us. May everything we do be for your sake, not for ours, for it's only then that your name can be glorified. We ask that you bless us now as we make preparation, Lord, for tonight's evening. And I just pray that you bless our fellowship now and tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.